0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter two. We'll finish chapter two today, Lord willing. Acts two forty two through forty seven. Let's pray. Fathers, your word says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Thank you for uniting us together, gathering us together this morning, and um, to hear your words, to receive your word, and to worship your name. And, Lord, sometimes we find things outside of your will that we perceive to be good and pleasant. But indeed, your word is good and pleasant, and unity amongst the brothers is good and pleasant. So we thank you for providing these things for us as a good and faithful father and king. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, Acts two forty-two through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. You may notice in the bulletin, this is part two of last week's sermon. Um, if you were able to be here last week, I began with the illustration of the most depressing city in the world, or at least what one uh, video creator believed to be, which was, in his opinion, Norilsk, Russia. And which kind of led to the question, what does it take for a city or a nation or a kingdom to have happy, thriving citizens. I pointed out that, at least from a human perspective, good governance generally leads to greater thriving, but uh, governments and kingdoms are ruled by people, and people are sinful. And even the best of governments are rife with corruption and greed and ignorance and mismanagement. But there is one king and one kingdom about which that is not true. The kingdom of heaven ruled by King Jesus... He is a perfect king, and thus he sets up his kingdom perfectly. He, he does so not making a single single mistake or overlooking a single thing. Now, that doesn't mean the church itself is perfect, because we're made up of sinners as well. But our king is perfect, and the way he set it up, set it up for us is perfect. Amen. So what I think we have in this passage is a window into the characteristics of this kingdom, marks of the church, if you will. And the picture we see is one of joyful, united, thriving citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And and again, we're imperfect citizens, but to the degree to which we submit ourselves to the institutions, to the ordinances which our king has put in place for us, to that degree we will be happy, thriving citizens of that kingdom. Um, So I've broken this passage up into seven marks. And last week we looked at the first four from verse 42. The apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And this week we'll look at the the last three from verses 43 through 47. So I want to just take a moment to review uh, those first four, the four devotions from verse 42. And they devoted themselves... To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And again, this devotion is not a devotion like we we expend on our hobbies, wherein we it waxes and wanes. But the devotion is more like eating meals or brushing our teeth, something we do day by day by day. So first is the apostolic doctrine that the Christian community is a doctrinal community or a learning community. We're naturally sons of Adam, sons of the world. And when we come into the kingdom of of Christ, we kind of need to be re-indoctrinated. Our our wires are all crossed. Um, And so the apostles were Christ-appointed messengers to do that task. And so we listen to their doctrine. We come to their doctrine in the word of God, in the Bible. And our hearts and minds are changed as the Holy Spirit comes alongside and gives clarity. Second is Christian fellowship. The fellowship fellowship is um, more than cookies and coffee at, on, on the Lord's Day. Uh, it, it's communion. It's sharing a sharing of space and time and food, goods, identity, community, uh, life, and fellowship with Christ necessarily comes with fellowship with His saints. The church, the kingdom of God, is a body consisting of many parts. Uh, temple consisting of many bricks. So if we're going to be united to the head, we must also be united to the body. Third, the breaking of bread. Uh, again, this, this is not exactly as, as clear as I would like it, but I believe it's referring to the Lord's Supper primarily here, coming to enjoy the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting that throughout the Bible, food is a gathering. Tool For fellowship and it's interesting that the Lord himself instituted the supper a meal as a means of fellowship and and again fellowship with one another but also fellowship with our head who is not here bodily with us but he's in heaven and then fourth is corporate prayer. Uh, Again, Christian communion is not simply horizontal. Christ himself reaches down and creates his kingdom of heaven on earth here in the church. We have the opportunity to reach up to heaven in prayer as well. So we get to commune with him in that way as well. And one of the means by which he he advances his kingdom is in fact the, the effectual prayers of his saints. So those are the four items, the Apostles' Doctrine, Christian Fellowship, Breaking of Bread, and Corporate Prayer. These are the, the four devotions. And two things jump out at me about these um, four marks of the kingdom. is First, we have to keep in mind, again, these are Christ, the King's institutions and ordinances. He's given them to us as, as gifts. So our devotion to them is is like our devotion to water. We come back time and time again, not as a slave to a field, but as thirsty travelers to a fountain. He, they're good gifts for us. And second, uh, these are corporate markers. Again, union with Jesus is not alone. It's not just me and him in a prayer closet. Uh, but, but we are united to his body. Uh, we, we wouldn't call ourselves a Russian just because we're devotees of President Putin, not that we would be, but that doesn't, that alone doesn't make us a Russian or an American or what to be a member of the kingdom is to be a member of the kingdom as a whole. Now the remaining verses in chapter 2 give us a sense of what life in the kingdom looks like. And we'll consider this under three headings. And first, I've called these three marks awe-rooted marks. That may not be the best word, but it's what I came up with. They're rooted in awe, or the fear of the Lord. So I'm calling them that because I think, as men, we're naturally inclined to to read these kind of passages as supposed-to passages, which I'm not afraid of supposed-tos or oughts or, or musts. But we have to have those supposed-tos rooted properly in the, in the right thing. Uh, so in this case, the source or the foundation of, of the things that these people are doing and devoting themselves to seems to be awe in this passage. Reverent awe. The way Luke words it here is it's an awe that comes not from within themselves that they manufacture, but it proceeds from outside of themselves. It says in verse 43, "And awe came upon every soul. So I wonder if you look back at your own experience, when it was, if, if you are able to, when you, when you first began to really worship God, like this is my experience, but perhaps you've grown you grew up in the church, you, you professed the the faith of your parents, perhaps you had belief in Jesus, you, you really believed he died for your sins, you maybe cared about obedience and holiness and love, if not from a place of love and reverence, but a place from trying to make God happy with you. But I think real genuine worship follows some kind of a big God moment or a big God season where you suddenly begin to see God as big. Where you realize that he's doing everything. That's He's doing everything. By the power of his own hand. For his own glory. We get to have a big God moment. Perhaps simultaneous to your conversion. Mine was later. Perhaps before conversion. Like Martin Luther. He realized how big God was. And that's a terrifying time. To have a big God moment. You remember he couldn't perform the mass he had to confess all the time the word here is the greek word phabos which means fear Um, so fear awe terror is appropriate in response to a big god with whom we are not on good terms and our natural response is just to try to do better to try to make amends but if we're trying to do that we don't really understand how big god is if we're really captured by an appropriate fear of the Lord, we'll understand how wide that chasm is between us and God. But if we've been redeemed, baptized into the name of Jesus, like these people had, if we're in Christ, that fear becomes awe, it becomes reverence. Because while that looming penalty of sin has been done away with, God himself has not changed. He's still worthy of fear, of awe. We begin to notice a growing zeal in ourselves for the glory of God. Everything in this universe is his universe. And it cries out for the glory of God. And Obedience and self-sacrifice and all these things are not motivated by an attempt at self-atonement, but by a holy reverence. we get to, as Christians, live in the family of the holy gods. That, that should produce in a sense of awe. As First Peter says in, in chapter 1, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in Christ's perfect kingdom, reverence and awe for the king are the root of happiness, satisfaction, and contentment as his subjects. As Christians, we're citizens of the only kingdom where it's appropriate to worship the king. Many kings want that. They want to be divine. They want to be worshipped. There's one kingdom in which that's appropriate, the kingdom of heaven. So from reverence and awe for the king are born these fruits here that we have. The first awe-rooted mark is unity. Unity. I hear all this time, our country is so divided. Wouldn't it be great if we could all just get along? To which I say, content matters. Amen. I'll explain what I mean by that, by an illustration. Content matters. I had an interaction on social media with a member of my extended family. Or at least I tried to. He didn't really respond. I tried to have an interaction. The cousin had a quote. Said something, or he, he, he indicated he was tempted to leave his denomination, a liberal denomination, the CRC, um, Christian Reformed Church. But he said, it's braver to stay and fight. He had a a quote from somebody that said that. I sent him a message saying, I felt this way many times over the years. And I agree, it is braver to stay and fight. And I have both left and stayed. My question to him, what is the ideal you believe is worth fighting for? Or put another way, what is the perspective but that that you have that your denomination is broken in some way that you need to fight for it, because I think I know roughly where he stands on issues, and I'm quite sure he'd be more interested in seeing the CRC be more focused on social justice and race and sexual uh, identity stuff whereas i if i were to stay and fight in the crc it would be to be rid of those items and focus on the gospel so content matters i mean it's a universal feeling even within and outside of the church we've all felt the need to leave a, leave an organization or should we stay and fight we we felt that tension that's nothing radical the real question is what are we fighting for content matters So the real reason we have disunity in our country, in every other country that exists, has existed, or will exist, is that the content of the passions for which we stand and fight are incongruous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> content matters. All that is said to point out that the reason for true Christian unity is a common content, common awe, a common mind, a, a common baptism, a common faith. I mean, we may, we may have differences in opinion. You, you may not want to baptize babies. I'd like to baptize all the babies. You, you, may, 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 not, you may have a, a premillennial or a postmillennial view. I have an all millennial view. We may have differences. But all who are united in Christ and live in His kingdom have the Holy Spirit and, and are overcome with an awe and a reverence for the one true God. We all believe the same apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's powerful, uniting content. the result then here is what we see in in these verses forty four through forty seven is this unity that they had. you see in verse forty four and all who believed were together and had all things in common and in verse forty six and day by day attending the temple together. again, breaking bread in their homes. These were people that were together. They were united. When we stand in the awe of the Lord of glory, we're drawn together with those who share the same awe. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. I am a companion of all who fear you. Of those who keep your precepts. Basically saying a friend of God's is a friend of mine. These people, they share a togetherness of focus and therefore a unity of mind prevailed. Which mind translated into a unity of life centered around Christ. That they're like soldiers devoted to their king and to the advancement of his kingdom. They're focused. So it says, all who believed were together. It's their belief, it's their common faith that drew them together. I mean, these people, It's a little bit unclear when this happened. Like, Did it happen after everybody went home from Pentecost? Or were were all of them still there? We're not sure, but these people were, were Jews mostly. And surely they had other people, other friends and family around they could have hung out with. And yet their belief drew them together as a new united Christian band in that context. It also says they attended the temple together with their new family. It's again, it's not quite clear what they were doing at the temple, because we know as Christians, there's no need for a temple. I preached on that on Easter. Jesus is our temple. Some have suggested they were there primarily to preach, to evangelize. Um, And it is the case that while there would have been a growing awareness of the needlessness of the temple, it was still the cultural center for Jews. A hub for them and and perhaps they thought uh, if Yahweh is going to be worshipped there let's worship the true Yahweh at the temple but whatever the case they attended and they attended together and then Luke tells us that they were breaking bread in their homes so unity extends beyond a single morning or a single place of worship Christian unity in the kingdom of Christ is shared experience within the homes of our fellow believers. We say I go to church. I go to church at Trinity Reformed Church. And it's true. The Lord's Day assembly is the most important expression of Christian fellowship and community that the word church means assembly. So when the assembly assembles the assembly assembles. However, our, our communion and fellowship is meant to extend beyond the Lord's Day assembly. It, it's also meant to extend beyond the confines of our particular fellowship. I, I was telling a few of you today that one of my, my favorite part hands down of going to presbytery, which I just returned from, is the worship service. It's a full worship service just like we would have here in the, in the morning. And to, to have people from Colorado to Montana, it's a visible expression of the unity of Christ's body, worshiping God together. But I also love to exchange, engage with brothers and sisters outside of reform circles, outside of the PCA, in this valley, sitting in, in other congregations right now, The kingdom of heaven includes people all over the valley, all over the Rocky Mountain region, all over the world. We're meant to have unity with them, fellowship with them. The kingdom of God is made up of sinners, save one, the head. And it's not easy to share in this kind of fellowship portrayed in this passage. It's not like it comes naturally to us. Unity is hard for us. But my charge, I guess, is this, is that we seek what we already have. We seek familial fellowship because we have familial fellowship. It's not something we have to create. In Christ, we have the same spiritual blood, the same spiritual DNA. We're family, and you pursue what you already have. The next mark here of these three all-rooted marks is the self-sacrificial sharing. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this is the great communism passage. Right? This is obviously teaching that coerced redistribution of wealth for social and economic equality of outcome is good, right? What is it teaching? It's showing us that we are redeemed and we're brought into the covenant family of God and we're drawn together in inclined By this common awe of the Lord, and therefore, as Paul says in Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. We could call communism or socialism by another name, and this is not a political comment. It's a biblical one. We can call it stealing. The Bible is quite clear that there's such a thing as personal property, including within the household of faith. One example in a few chapters, chapter 5 of Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, sell a piece of property, and Ananias sells it and, and keeps some back for himself and gives the proceeds to the church. Then Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied to man, not to man, but to God. Peter's point there is not, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira died as a result of this. They didn't die because they kept some back. It's because they lied. They had every right, Peter says, to keep some back. So personal property is such is a thing even within the household of God. But we are knit together into a single body, and so the hurts of one hurt the whole body. We're, we're drawn to relieve the pain with our, in our own body. John Bunyan has a good little book entitled The Fear of God. He says, There flows from this godly fear compassion in a heart to those of the saints that are in necessity and distress. He has an example from um, the Bible of the prophet Obadiah, not the book, but um, it says, Now Obadiah, saith the text, feared the Lord greatly, for it was so, When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. This was charity to the distressed, even the distressed for the Lord's sake. Had not Obadiah served the Lord, yea, he he not greatly feared him, he would not have been able to do this thing. But now, even now, the fear of God in this good man's heart put forth itself to acts of mercy, though attended with so imminent danger. What he's saying there is that he did this thing out of the fear of the Lord, despite what could be great fear, the fear of Jezebel. And yet he cared for the needs of the saints. In Hebrews 13, the writer speaks of this kind of love in the face of danger. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those mistreated since you are in the body. Specifically, this is those who are in prison and mistreated for the faith. As we see in chapter 10 of Hebrews, when he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So at this point in the story of Acts, it's not exactly safe or popular to be a Christian. And yet they were taking care of one another. They were identifying with one another. Because after all, the fear of the Lord says, what can man do to me? By Christ, I stand in the good graces of the one who has the power to cast me body and soul into hell. Or am I really going to keep what I have to myself when my brother is in need? My my Savior, my King, promises me that that God takes care of and feeds the sparrows and clothes the lilies. So He will feed and clothe me. Odds are He will feed and clothe me through the goodwill and generosity of a kind brother or sister. Thirdly, the communion of the saints is a God-centered community. So this third awe-rooted mark is worship-filled communion. Worship-filled communion. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I just love this image of people sharing meals in their homes, praising God, rejoicing for what they've been given. In the fear of the Lord, we understand that all we deserve is wrath. So that whatever we receive, little or great, it's all gravy. So when we sit with brothers and sisters and enjoy a good meal or a good beverage, we do so with a spirit of gratitude to the glory of God. And likewise, if one day we, like many other Christians, are reduced to eating a meager meal of a little rice spread too thin amongst brothers and sisters, we can still say it's gravy, it's grace. That's what the fear of the Lord does for us. And what a contrast this image is here in Acts versus the image of our former way of life in Titus 3.3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In Christ we have all things. We're freed from the slavery to passions and desires and anxieties about needs. We can be grateful and content to share in the love of the communion of the saints. Isn't that what Proverbs says? Proverbs fifteen, sixteen, and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. There can be nothing better in this world than time shared around a table where the centerpiece of conversation is the Lord. Again, Bunyan from his book on fear of the Lord. There flows from this fear a holy provocation to a reverential conversation with the saints in their religious and godly assemblies for further progress in the faith and way of holiness. And it's true, I think, whatever we're inspired by, whatever we're in awe of or perhaps in fear of, whatever we're excited about, we bring those things into conversation. So what better is there than the attributes and actions of God to capture our hearts in reverent awe that that flows out into speech? I began this two-part sermon by saying that this passage represents, I think, something of an ideal for us, something we may not arrive at, but it's something to strive towards. As feeble, sinful citizens, we'll never have the proper devotion to the things of God. We'll never have the proper awe for God. But I will continue to contend that the more we submit ourselves to the way that Jesus has been building his perfect kingdom, the more contented we will be. It's no coincidence that in, in, that, that these seven marks of the kingdom are followed by this sentence, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. These are not just things that we do. These are the things that the Lord has given to us the gifts of Jesus Christ to satisfy the sheep and to grow his flock day by day. What would you guess is the cover art for the Bunyan's book, The Fear of the Lord? Fire, lightning and shattering rock. In my copy, at least, the image on the front is an idyllic pasture with sheep gently feeding or laying down. The perfect image for the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord have Him as their king. They also have Him as their shepherd. He leads us to green pastures and quiet waters. Amen. Amen.